Today on Something You Should Know, is it a moot point or a mute point? Espresso or expresso? Etc. or etc. We'll look at some commonly misused words and phrases. Then, how risky are you? And how does your age affect how much risk you'll take? There is something about having your peers around you in the teenage years, which really downplays risk. You're much more interested in pressing your friends and trying these things than you are in thinking about the outcomes. Plus, what do you do with your towel after a shower? I'll tell you why it's important. And who doesn't love science? And this science discussion will really make you think. For example, you walk into your kitchen and you see on the floor a broken egg. How come we never see the egg actually jump back up onto the counter and reassemble itself? Because technically, when we look at our equations, the equations don't see a past and a present. All this today on Something You Should Know. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. As you probably know, podcasting is a very fast-growing medium. But it's still a relatively new medium, and one of the things we're not especially good at yet is figuring out who's listening. We have a pretty good idea of how many people are listening, but we're still working on figuring out who it is that makes up that audience. One way to do that is to ask you to take a quick survey, which helps give us some insight as to who you are and therefore provide a better podcast targeted to the audience. So to that end, I invite you to take our survey, which is located at wondery.com survey. We're part of the Wondery network of podcasts, so that's where the survey is. It's Wondery, like the word wonder with a Y on the end, wondery.com survey. Take that survey, and I appreciate it. First up today, words and phrases that get warped and misused over time. The problem is that a lot of those words and phrases become commonplace, but they're still warped and misused and consequently incorrect. Here are some commonly misused words and phrases that you want to make sure you're not using. A mute point. The correct phrase is a moot point. Mute means silent. A moot point is something that is subject to debate or a matter of no importance. Expresso. Strong coffee in a tiny cup has no X in it, either in writing or pronunciation. It is espresso, not expresso. Jive with the facts. This phrase is used to say that something isn't correct as, hey, that doesn't jive with the facts. But jive is defined as a colorful form of speaking or as referring to a certain kind of jazz or swing music. The correct phrase is jibe b with a b jibe with the facts jibe means to agree etc pronounce etc exactly how it is spelled the first syllable is et not ek overuse of the word literally a lot of people throw this word around as an embellishment to intensify whatever they're trying to say but literally means actually or in a strict sense so you can't say my head literally exploded <laughs> because if it did, y- your head would have exploded. 80s. When people write the abbreviation for a decade, like 80s or 70s or 90s, they typically write 80 apostrophe S. But the correct way is to write it apostrophe 
80S. The apostrophe goes in front to replace the 19 of 1980. There's no apostrophe between the 0 and the S because there's no reason to put an apostrophe there. And that is something you should know. One of the fascinating things that really defines who we are and where we go is our ability and willingness to take risks. I think about it. If you never take risks, you never get anywhere. Taking risks is how we move forward in life, literally and figuratively. But, but taking risks can also be, well, risky. Risky in the bad sense of the term, that you're being too risky. Because taking a risk implies you could fail, and if you're too risky, you could fail a lot, and, well, that's not good. So let's dive a little deeper into the topic of risk with somebody who has really studied it. Kate Sukel is a journalist and author of the book The Art of Risk, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance. Hi, Kate. Welcome. So what's your interest in this subject of risk-taking? I mean, you write about a lot of things as a journalist, and you have another book about love and sex. So why risk-taking? My parents had always talked about me and said that I was a risk-taker. And I kind of approached 40, and it stopped. So I was kind of curious about that. If risk-taking is supposedly this innate quality, where had it gone? Um, At the same time, you know, my son was getting older, and I was watching him explore the world, and I was also sort of curious, you know, how he was set up. How much of risk is biological? How much of it is the environment? And can you learn to be a good risk-taker? Well, what's interesting to me about risk is it's one of those words that, that it kind of depends on how you say it as to whether it's a good or bad thing. You know, it's, it's too risky or, wow, he's so successful because he's a risk taker. And it's the, exactly. same, it's the same word, but, but it can go either way. And there's no in-betweens, right? It's either risk is the thing is going to kill you and bankrupt you, uh, maybe in the reverse order. It's going to ruin your life, uh, or it's the thing that's going to make you great. It's the thing that's going to make all of your dreams come true. Um, And we don't really talk about the middle. It's either all injury, disease, and death, or, you know, all success, wealth, and happiness. And how did we get there? Why, why these two sides that are so, so far apart? And of course, what scientists are learning is risk-taking really is something in the middle. Uh, when we're talking about risk, as simple as it sounds, it really is making a decision of which you're uncertain of the outcome. And so it can be something as little as whether or not you should have that third cup of coffee in the morning, knowing it might give you the jitters later, or whether it is about, you know, investing all of your savings into a new startup or moving cross-country for a new job. We talk about risk mostly about these big things. And the irony is we don't see all those little decisions, all those little risks that went into, um, you know, those, those outcomes that we usually end up talking about. Yeah, nobody ever says, you know, he's so successful because he's a really mediocre risk taker. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the thing is, you know, there's a judgment value in there, right? So it's this idea that that you have to gamble. And I, I think that's the other thing when we talk about language. You know, some people, when they talk about risk, they're talking about, you know, gambling. They're talking about impulsive behavior. They're talking about... Um, you know, things that, that often do lead to negative outcomes. But really, you know, that smart risk-taking, that calculated risk-taking, 
he's maybe not a mediocre risk taker, but he's done his homework. He's, you know, done enough to know the knowns and, you know, make a good calculation on some of the unknowns. And he's learned enough from his mistakes so that he can go forward and, and succeed. And I think that that's really important. And there may be a fair amount of, you know, mediocrity in some of those decisions that got him there. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning, that when you hit 40, it disappeared. Where'd it go? Good question. You know, I'd spent all this time in my 20s and 30s traveling all over the place, literally swimming with sharks, rock climbing. I mean, I, I was a bit of an adrenaline junkie. And then I sort of hit my 40s and found myself, you know, not unless there was an SVU uh, Law and Order Marathon on, I wasn't doing much of anything at all. And I, I really wondered about that switch. And, of course, there is a lot of science that talks about now, as we get older, it kind of gets harder to put yourself out there. There's good reason for that. Um, certainly, risk-taking as a behavior is something that is linked to uh, mate-seeking. It's something that's linked to success and choice. By the time we get to our 40s and 50s, um, you know, we gain enough experience. Uh, you know, the old joke is you're old enough to know better. Well, you get to the point where you're old enough where it's not that you know better or not, you just know too much, and it kind of can make you stand still. So a lot of the research really looks at as we get older, for because we've gained all this great experience, we know about all the potential bad outcomes, and a lot of times that can make us really risk-averse. And it's too bad because in the process, we can miss out on some great opportunities. I would think, too, though, that if you are a risk-taker and have been most of your life and been successful and the risks have turned out that that it wouldn't go away that it would it's worked for you up till now why not keep going you'd think so and that would be a really great experiment to do and yet there is something about getting older where all of a sudden you're like you you get more protective of what you have it's interesting in talking to some old rock climbers these were all very very good rock climbers who uh you know, were very skilled, very practiced. Even they sort of got more risk averse. They sort of, as they were assessing situations, tended to rate them as more dangerous or more likely to result in a fall than than younger rock climbers were. So even though they had the skills to do it, even though they had the know-how, all that experience that their brain had taken in over time was telling them, okay, here's the 1,600 ways this could go wrong. And I think at a certain point when your brain starts going down that path, um, you know, it's almost a sense of anxiety. There has to be a really good reason to start that climb. And the reverse is true. I mean, at least starting in the teenage years, you look at teenage behavior, often called risky teenage behavior. Teenagers seem very willing to take risks and to the point of being foolish about it. Well, there's a biological imperative there. I mean, one, the brain, if if we distill down what the brain does into a simplest form, it's a prediction machine. It is there to try to figure out what the world is going to throw at you next. In order to be a good prediction machine, it has to gain lots and lots of experience. So teenagers, they're going through this last leg of brain development. They're, you know, cementing these really important connections that are going to help them be successful adults. And that means they kind of have to get out there and get into the thick of it so they do know what the consequences are. I think often it's not so much that teens, you know, think that they're invincible. It's that they really have no idea what the outcomes might be. 
um, they don't have enough experience. And it's not enough to say, oh, you know, this could hurt you or this could ruin you or what have you. They have to really sort of experience a little bit of that for themselves to understand what the stakes are. Yeah, but there are plenty of things that kids do and they f- know full well if if you go 100 miles an hour in a drag race, there's a good chance you'll wind up crashing your car and be dead. And if you do drugs, I mean, they've been... But there's there's a difference between intellectually knowing and having experienced some of that stuff firsthand. And when you're in the moment, and there's actually quite a bit of research that now shows when you're talking about driving 100 miles an hour... Uh, there is something about having your peers around you in the teenage years, which really downplays risk. You're much more interested in pressing your friends and trying these things than you are in thinking about the outcomes. Um, it almost, you know, turns off uh, the frontal lobes of the brain, the area of the brain that sort of acts as the executive control, the judgment center, the brakes, if you will, of, of bad or impulsive behavior. So part of that is being in a group and going with a crew. Um, but another part of that really is, you know, there there is a huge difference, you know, between intellectually understanding something. They get these messages all the time in school from movies, from after-school specials. Um, but there is something about gaining that some of that experience firsthand or having a peer who does or that, that really makes them think about it a little bit differently. And I think we probably know plenty of adults, even older teens, that uh, maybe they're not drag racing, but they'll look down, uh, you know, when they're driving on the freeway every now and again and go, oh, wait, you know, I'm up near 100. I really need to slow down. I'm speaking with Kate Sukel. She is a journalist and author of the book, The Art of Risk, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance. So, Kate, my guess would be that in terms of gender, that men are generally bigger risk takers than women? That has been the story for a very long time, and there was plenty of research to support it. And the idea was there was an evolutionary biology, uh, you know, kind of story that, that men, uh, they need to be riskier so they can go out and find food and avoid predators and, you know, take things back to their family, attract mates. Um, but newer research is actually showing not as big of a difference as we once believed between males and females. And what researchers are thinking now is it has to do with opportunity. So many of the experiments that have been done on risk-taking behavior, both in the neuroscience and psychological realms, they look at things like finances. They look at things like extreme sports. They look at things, um, you know, that women just didn't have great numbers in for a very long time. Um, And as we see, you know, more and more sponsored female athletes by companies like Patagonia and Cliff Bar, and as we see more women in the boardroom and, um, you know, in the doctor uh, operating room or where have you, what we're seeing is men and women, there's not that much difference in the amount of risks that they take. So that whole idea that boys will be boys and women are better angels, a lot of it really depends on the context. And new research is showing that it's not as cut and dried as we once thought. So when you look at what you would maybe call successful risk takers, what do they have in common? Well, the first thing is you will talk to them whether they are a um, you know, world-renowned base jumper or a professional poker player or a famed neurosurgeon. They will all sit there and tell you, I'm not really a risk taker. 
and you can kind of argue with them about that. Um, but they all sort of, they don't think of themselves as risk takers. And I think that's because they are so well-versed in what they do. They have a lot of experience. They take the time to really know that one area, um, and it's usually the area that, that, you know, they work in, whether it is base jumping or neurosurgery. They spend a lot of time and have a lot of experience. They're always learning, and not only learning from their success, successes, but also learning a lot from their mistakes. And, you know, they're, they're making sure to really pay attention to things that might trip them up in the future. And that is something that we saw again and again, no matter what their domain was. It was a lot of preparation, a lot of homework, and a lot of an ability to take a step back and say, okay, you know, this may be a mistake, but if it is a mistake, this is how I'm going to learn from it to move forward. And what is it that people who are lousy risk takers have in common? I imagine that's harder to define, but, but w- what are not, they... It is not, actually. Oh, it's okay. impulsivity. A lousy risk taker is somebody who is flying by the seat of their pants. They're not thinking things through. They're acting in the moment, um, and that tends to be the kind of risk that's going to land you in jail uh, or and you know get you a disease or a serious injury. Um, and it really is a huge difference. We often use, you know, risk-taking and impulsivity interchangeably, but they're clearly very, very different from a cognitive standpoint. Flying by the seat of your pants, it may work for you every once in a while, but over the long term, it, it's, it's dangerous. Um, but successful, calculated risk-taking really is about doing the upfront work, um, you know, practicing doing your homework, and again, failing forward. But don't you think that there just are people by their nature that are more willing to take risks, and there are other people who are much more cautious and not willing to take risks, and it's just part of, of who they are, It's n- and nothing more than that? There is some of that, and certainly there's been a lot of work looking at the genetics of risk-taking behavior. Um, a lot of people like to talk about a gene, they call it the warrior gene. And it's a gene that makes people uh, a little bit more out there, more likely to take risks. But, you know, the thing is, is that all of us have some natural tendencies. And it's not that we can't learn to become better risk takers, um, become more comfortable with, with novelty. It's funny the one of the greatest indicators of whether or not one a person will take a risk is how familiar they are with it. And you can think of a really silly example, which is the subway versus driving in a car. If you grew up in New York City, you know, from the time that you're a little kid, you're probably riding the subway and not thinking anything of it. Um, And I grew up in that area. I took the subway by myself when I was 10 or 11. And now I, I live in Texas. And I remember telling somebody here that I did that. They were horrified. They had never been on a subway or even in a big city like that, and they thought that I, I basically was walking onto a train as a child with a big sign on it that says, mug me. They, they just thought that that was the riskiest thing ever, whereas your average person from Manhattan wouldn't think twice. But then you take that same hardcore Manhattanite, the person who's you know, been in the city forever and has seen it all, put them in a rental car in you know, rural Georgia, and tell you know, give them directions like turn left at the blue chicken, and they're going to start to freak out. Wait, where do I go? How do I do this? 
so much of, of what we're comfortable with really comes down to familiarity. You know, what's interesting to me is that a lot of times we'll say something is risky and feel that something is risky when it really isn't. And, and probably the stereotypical risky thing to do would be to, you know, parachute jump, jump out of an airplane with a parachute. That feels real risky, but statistically it's not risky. Most people who jump out of an airplane live through it just fine. The parachute opens and they land. It's scary, but it's not risky. Well, and that's the thing. Heightened emotions can really change the way that we assess risky situations. Stress can as well. And those are important things to realize. It ties into what I said before about familiarity. I mean, you are so much more likely to die on your morning commute to work. Yet all of us, you know, get, or many of us, uh, you know, hop in our cars every morning and some people drive up to an hour and a half, two hours to get to work back and forth, despite the fact that there are so many automobile accidents. And yet you hear people all the time talking about how they're so afraid to fly and outside of, you know, forgive me because I know the Southwest incident just happened, but that's a fluke accident. And have you ever heard of anything else like that ever happening on a commercial airliner? And yet I'm sure ticket sales are going to go down because of this one thing. Our emotions really change the way that we do the calculations. They heighten factors that probably shouldn't be heightened. Um, and they may often make us ignore things that absolutely shouldn't be ignored. So if I wanted to be a better risk taker, a smarter risk taker, what do I need to do? What are the things I need to put together here? I think the first thing is you need to understand that there's risk involved with every decision you make each and every day. We need to stop inflating risk into something that it's not, um, which is all of this, you know, extreme sports, adrenaline junkie, uh, you know, big business kind of uh, talk that we usually use with it. But I think the second thing is, you know, once you get past that really kind of polarizing language is you sit down and... You think things through. You try to get as much experience before, you know, you take a deep dive uh, into a particular hobby or business project. You learn what you can. You take baby steps. Um, you know, small steps can be, instead of a big jump, they'll still get you to the same outcome, but probably with less uh, less chance of a broken leg, right? Um I think it's really about doing the work, doing the preparation, gaining the experience, and taking the time not to make decisions in the heat of the moment or when you're overly emotional. And those are really the big keys to being a more successful and a more calculated risk taker. Which is, of course, the point, not to take a lot of risks necessarily, but to take the right risks and, and do it well. My guest has been Kate Sukel. Her book is The Art of Risk, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance. And there's a link to her book in the show notes. Thank you for being here, Kate. Oh, no, thank you. I really appreciate it. I really do love science. It fascinates me in, in a very <laughs> layman kind of way. If you get too deep into it, you're going to lose me. But I really do enjoy hearing people who know what they're talking about talk about it, which is why I want to introduce you to Scott Bembenek. He is a scientist who has his PhD in theoretical chemical physics. I don't even know what that is. And he's the author of a book aimed at making science easier for people like me to grasp. 
The book is called The Cosmic Machine, The Science That Runs Our Universe and the Story Behind It. Hi, Scott. So let's dive in and start with something, you know, really simple like quantum mechanics. (laughs) What is it, if you can explain it, and why is it important to understand? Quantum mechanics is very interesting and it really encompasses quite a bit, but the idea is really that you know, what we get from quantum mechanics is when you get down to the molecular scale. So when you're looking at this very small scale, and obviously we can't see this without special equipment, but molecules and atoms, that things are a little bit different than what we see in our day-to-day lives, kind of at this larger scale, or we call it, you know, a macro scale. So when we get down to the scale of atoms and molecules, things behave very, very differently. One of the fundamental ideas behind quantum mechanics is that energy which we originally thought was kind of this, you know, smooth, continuous flowing thing. You have your cup of coffee, it's hot, and it just cools off very gradually. But what we know now that is, is that it's not so smooth, that when you get down to the way energy behaves at the quantum mechanical level with atoms and molecules, it actually comes in chunks. And so, in other words, the way atoms and molecules absorb and give off energy, it's not like that cup of coffee that just gradually, slowly, smoothly cools off, they actually absorb energy in chunks and they actually emit it in chunks. And if they don't have the right chunks of energy, they don't absorb, they don't interact with it. You know, no one ever thought about this. They thought that energy is just a smooth thing. I mean, here's a great example. So imagine you're driving down the highway. Well, as you accelerate, you're increasing your energy, specifically the kinetic energy. And as you do that, it's a smooth transition, you know, as long as you're smoothly pressing on the acceleration. It's, it's smooth. You don't notice like this kind of a chunking or your car doesn't like stop and start, for example. Quantum mechanics is when you look at atoms and the way they absorb and emit energy, it's not like that. If they don't have the right energy, they can't actually get up to the quote unquote speed. And if they want to get back down from that speed, that's a specific process as well. It, it has to be kind of these discrete chunks. You know, it's a very weird phenomenon, and it's kind of at the heart of quantum mechanics. And why is that important to know? What does that tell us? <clears throat> so from this, we learned some other things. And one of the biggest things from quantum mechanics is that, is that there's this inherent uncertainty. We call it the quantum probability or the uncertainty. And maybe people have heard of Heisenberg's uncertainty. Well, what this means and why is this is important to us is because it means that apparently, and we're still trying to understand this, our world as we know it, when we look at the atomic level and we look at molecules, things are uncertain. So for example, we used to think, and I think most of us learned this model of the atom where it's kind of like you have an atom, you have the nucleus, and the electrons are spinning around it, kind of like the way the planets move around the sun. It's not like that at all, though, because what really happens is there's a lot of uncertainty. So you actually have an atom, you do have electrons moving around it, but their exact positions at a given moment in time and their exact energy that those electrons have, it's not well-defined, it's not well-determined, it's probabilistic. It only becomes well-defined and it only becomes determined, if you will, when we try to look at it. So when I use my special equipment to try to observe, quote-unquote, the quantum state of that atom, then it takes on a definitive state. But up until then, everything is very fuzzy. It's very obscure. It's very uncertain. That's very, very strange because the world that you and I live in, once again, when I'm driving down the road in that, My GPS, I can look at Google Maps, it can tell me where I am. I can tell other people where I am. I'm going down to five, I'm passing this mile marker or what have you, I'm getting off at this exit. 
it's not like it's not like that at the the very small scale of atoms and molecules and subatomic particles. They don't behave that way. They don't have these well-defined properties. There's always uncertainty, and so that really affects a lot of things. That inherently that tells us something about nature. That it, it's almost as if nature is kind of um, keeping its options open, if you will. It's kind of hedging its bets. You know, it's it's just inherently uncertain, even though we can't see it. It is going on at that level. But uh, at our level, nature seems relatively predictable. Absolutely. And this is what we can't seem to reconcile. So at our level, nature is very predictable, it seems like, right? Because we've, and this is where things got very confusing. You know, I mean, Newton's laws of classical physics worked for, you know, a long, long time. And then we got the quantum mechanics and you know, people are like, no, this, this this can't be right. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. And and we still struggle with it. I mean, this was something that Einstein, here you have Einstein for some 20 years, starting from 1905 to roughly, you know, 1925 or so, when he made his last major contribution to quantum mechanics. He was a trailblazer in quantum theory and quantum mechanics. He was, he was out there in front. And then we got to this weird interpretation that I just described, this quantum probability, this uncertainty. And he's like, whoa, no, I'm, I'm done. I mean, this is, this is too strange. The science of time, time and space, uh, it fascinates me. And, and you talk about the arrow of time. So explain what that is. For example, you walk into a room. Let's say you walk into your kitchen and you see on the floor a broken egg. And you say to yourself, oh, okay, well, that egg must have been sitting on the counter in the past. And perhaps it must have got bumped or just rolled off. And now it's on the floor and it's broken. And so we have this sense of time. But what's actually really unusual, if you look at the, the, the mechanics or you look at the physics that govern that process of the egg falling off and breaking and, and what have you, the, the physics aren't really time constrained. The, the physics doesn't, the equations don't see a past and a present. They see them as essentially one and the same, and we call this reversible. So the equations according to the time are reversible. Well, what does that mean physically? I mean, that's, that's a fancy name for things, but... Physically, it means how come we never see the egg actually jump back up onto the counter and reassemble itself? Because technically, when we look at our equations, that's what it says. And so people are constantly struggling with, once again, it's this idea of the arrow of time. And it also involves, you know, how is the arrow of time coupled with another concept that you probably have heard of, entropy. And entropy, kind of a loose definition um, which isn't my favorite, but it does give you a sense of of things. Is we we think of entropy as increasing in disorder. Things increase in disorder. So, for example, going back to the egg, it fell off the counter and it broke. It's obviously it's broken now. It's more it's messier. It's more disordered. And the universe as a whole, we say, favors an increase in entropy. It's actually the second law of thermodynamics. And we say, well, that's why that's why the egg actually when it broke, it didn't bounce back up onto the table and take on this reverse state because it's it's Entropy doesn't allow it. The second law doesn't allow it. It favors an increase in entropy, not actually a decrease. But see, we don't understand how these things go together because, like I said, our our other equations that we have say that, well, no, it's these equations say it could go either way. I guess one of my fascinations about time, too, is that I, I remember speaking to someone who said, you know, scientifically, there is nothing significant about now, that we can't really define now and what is now? And yet we, we know what now is, but whoops, now it's gone. Now it's another now. So there is no now. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I and think because we have this uncertainty. Yeah, so if I were to, so scientifically, so if I were to go back to the physics and try to pull out 
what does now mean? So in terms of time, you have a, a now or a present, if you will. You know, do my equations, you know, well describe that? I guess that would be the way I would answer this as a physicist. And I would say they don't. They, you know, I can map it. I quote unquote map it in space time and we can find that position, so to speak. You know, but the fact that I, I don't have this clear reconciliation between the equations that don't seem to distinguish it and the equations like the second law of entropy that do, no, I would say we don't have this, you know, very exceptionally clear understanding. We have a we have a couple different theories that they work pretty well. Well, they work well. Uh, but when you try to bring them all together, this is where we get, this, this is where things always get tricky. Yeah. You know, I think that's kind of the bottom line. We have theories that work in certain arenas, you know, quantum works at the very small, the atoms and the molecules, where we can't see any of those things. But it works great. But we have to accept this weird idea of quantum probability, which, you know, Einstein himself couldn't even accept. And then at the the large scale, you know, classical mechanics and things like general relativity, things are working great there. But together, they don't play nicely. And we we don't know why. The idea that space and time are interwoven, that they're part of the same thing, that time affects space and space affects time, that all started with Einstein, right? Yeah, that's right. This would have been around 1905. Einstein, uh, he had a big year there. He came out with four amazing papers, which changed areas of physics that just blew everybody's mind. And he finished up his PhD uh, dissertation and got his PhD. Big year for him. And one of those papers was special relativity. And that's where, that was the very beginning. People had been thinking about it, but they were thinking so that we were getting these weird experiments and people couldn't describe it. And from these experiments, the theoreticians proposed equations that coupled, started, started to couple time and space. But Einstein said, well, wait, these, these aren't just equations. Okay, these things are really coupled physically. And people are like, well, no, wait, because that's that's weird, because it means that you would have to have all kinds of weird things happen. And so he was actually, you know, one of the first people that took it seriously. He stepped outside the mathematics of it and said, this isn't just a, a mathematical transformation, if you will, to change between coordinate systems. You know, that's that's simple. That's that's easy stuff to actually reconcile, at least in your mind. This is actually real physics happening. Space and time are coupled intimately. And when you do when you affect space, it also affects time and vice versa. And that was, that was a big deal. I mean, that took some time to really catch on. So if space and time affect each other, doesn't that sort of indicate that maybe time travel is possible? Well, <clears throat> I mean, nobody agrees on if time travel is possible. Well, it must be impossible, right? Because if time travel was possible, then where are all the people from the future? Well, that's right. Well, uh, well, well. Now we're well, now we're running into a bunch of interesting things. Well, okay. To, to understand some of these ideas, so one of the big ideas now you got me thinking about. So I got to throw it out there. One of the big ideas in terms of reconciling some of what you're talking about and also reconciling some of the weirdness in quantum mechanics is this idea of multiverses. So there's this idea of parallel universes, is what it used to be called, but now the new name or the more cool name, if you will, is, is this idea of the multiverse. So going back to this idea where, you know, we saw that I, I told you that the, the state of the atom isn't well determined according to quantum mechanics, that there's uncertainty, this probability. There's other people that say, well, <clears throat> maybe it's not really like that. Maybe it is well determined. It's just that all the outcomes or possibilities are happening in different 
parallel universes, universes that we may not actually be able to interact with. So this is actually a very popular theory. But to, to the layperson like me, that seems so non-scientific. I mean, to come up with an explanation for why things do what they do is that there are parallel universes that we cannot experience and you can't prove their existence. Well, isn't that what science is all about? That if you can't prove it, then all you have is a theory and what you need to do is prove it. I'm with you there. I mean, I'm pretty, you know, so by training, I'm a a theoretician and I love working with the math and the physics and the chemistry and writing down the equations and you know, you get a certain sense of, of beauty in this. And, and this is an argument that you hear often from, for example, the strength theorists. I'm, I'm not a strength theorist, but um, is that, you know, these equations, they can't be wrong because they're, they're so beautiful. I mean, they're, they're describing, you know, things that are very well connected and there's a certain inherent beauty here that this must be how the universe works. But then going back to your argument, yeah, okay, but if we can't prove these things with experiments, then this theory isn't, we got to get rid of it, or we have to revise it at least. Do you have a sense of where it came from? I mean, it, it can't be just like people sitting in a room and somebody says, well, hey, I, I've got an idea. <laughs> maybe maybe this is all because of parallel universes, because, you know, I had a dream last night. Or, I mean, it had, to, it had to come from somewhere. It's showing up in several different ways. So you're kind of getting a self-consistency between the the different approaches, if you will, the different mathematics. They kind of seem to converge on, you know, depending on how you're doing it, they converge on this idea of the multiverse. But I'm but I'm with you, you know, it's if we can't prove these things experimentally, you know, at some point, do we have to put it on the shelf? Do we have to, you know, or you know, let's not get rid of it altogether. You know, we put it on the shelf until, you know, maybe it's so we don't have the technology right now. Maybe this is a, a pretty naive, unscientific-y kind of question, but I, I, I'm no scientist. But when you have a theory to explain something, and the theory is so hard to get your head around that you can't prove parallel universes, I can't even really imagine what, what that even would look like. When you believe that, and that that's your explanation for why things are the way they are, isn't that a belief system not unlike religion? And then yet religion and science often don't mix. So, so how do you reconcile that? Um, I have a lot of trouble with it myself because in some ways it is a belief system. I mean, going back to what I said earlier, if, you, if, you know, if you're sitting and you're looking at your equations and you're saying there's no way that this can't be the physical reality because this mathematical equation is so beautiful, is that not a belief system of some sort? I have no experimental evidence to prove it. But this equation is so elegant, so beautiful, so well describing. This must be how the universe works. Yes, I would say that is a belief system, not unlike other belief systems such as religion. Well, if we talk much more, I think my head's going to start to hurt. But I, I love this topic. I love talking about it and learning about it because <laughs> I seem to know so little. But I, it really is fascinating, and you've explained it well. Scott Bambenek has been my guest. He is a scientist. Uh, His PhD is in theoretical chemical physics. He is author of the book, The Cosmic Machine, the science that runs our universe and the story behind it. There's a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. And thanks for being here, Scott. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Had a great time. I remember coming across this information a long time ago, and it, it stuck with me, so I figured it's, it's certainly worth sharing here. And it, it's about what you do in the bathroom. 
<laughs> you might want to change a few things about your shower ritual that will save you trouble in the future. And one of them, and the thing that I remember the most about this, is that you shouldn't fold wet towels or hang them on a hook. Folded towels look nicer, but a folded towel is going to grow bacteria and smell because when it's all folded up, it can't dry out. You'll then rub those bacteria all over yourself after tomorrow's shower. So your towel should be spread out over the full length of the towel bar so it can dry as quickly as possible. And you should never keep your shower curtain open. If you leave the curtain open after the shower, the water in the folds of the curtain won't dry and will start to get moldy. Always use the bathroom fan when you shower, but here's the thing, you should leave it on for 20 minutes afterwards to remove the steam and moisture from the room. If you let your tiles and ceiling remain moist, you're creating an ideal climate for mold to start growing. To start growing. And that is something you should know. If you enjoyed this podcast, I invite you to share it with just one other person or with your social media friends. Share links are right there on the player on the website at somethingyoushouldknow.net. And there are share links on iTunes or Apple Podcasts as they like to be called now. If you share it, people will admire your good taste and be your friend forever. Possibly shower you with gifts. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.